Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 78, the book of Matthew, chapter 23, the conclusion. Well, as we inch closer and closer to Yeshua's death on the cross in Matthew's gospel, there's so much context and background and many subjects that we encounter that are in much need of explanation and, and fleshing out that at times we're going to need to pause to confront them. Although I pray it'll be an interesting and spiritually profitable pause. So let's go where angels fear to tread and open up, days, open up today's lesson. There is precious little teaching in the modern church on the subject of hell. And probably because there's precious little teaching on the subject of sin. Now, even though finding considerable tradition-based reading material on this kind of a matter isn't, isn't all that difficult, the reality is that particularly in the West, and the ideas being told that we're wrong about much of anything or that we are accountable and there's real consequences for our actions, it's just not liked. Much has been done by governments as well as the institutional church to kind of sort of dance around personal accountability in, in order to appeal to a broader public, whether that accountability is to a particular society or to God. As Ben Withering III put it in his commentary on Matthew chapter 23, we want no-fault relationships, no-fault divorce, no-fault auto accidents, no-low contendery legal verdicts, and the like. No wonder we don't want to talk about some people going to hell forever. Now, no-low contendery means a plea by which a defendant in a criminal prosecution accepts a conviction as though they had pled guilty, but they don't admit their guilt. And in the American court system, the defendant's hoping that they'll have a personal conversation with the judge to explain their side of the story that, of course, has what, in the defendant's views, are mitigating circumstances that dilutes their responsibility for their illegal behavior. Thus, behaviors that are knowingly wrong or against the law might become less illegal due to the circumstances. Maybe a sympathetic judge will render a merciful, a, a lesser sentence, maybe even suspend the sentence altogether. You know, when I was in the military, there was a kind of nolo contendery argument that was commonly used. It was joked about. When we used to have to stand before our superior to explain our actions that were most definitely against the orders we'd been given. Guilty with an excuse, sir. The hope was the same. Guilt, but little or no accountability. Or perhaps less severe consequences for it. Now, the question that all those who seek God 
and especially for believers, must ask are, will we really be held accountable for our sins now that Jesus has come? And if you so, if so, does that accountability include the possibility of hell? Which leads to, does hell even exist? Is there really a place where our accountability to God can involve a consequence for our actions that is beyond terrible and painful and also without end? Two well-known former megachurch pastors, Rob Bell and, and Carlton Pearson, say, no, there is not. They say a loving God like Jesus wouldn't do such a thing. Now, I have had, actually had the same notion confidently and directly expressed to me on more than one occasion by Christians who have lost family members that had never expressed belief in Christ by others that use the concept of hell as but another reason to avoid any relationship with Jesus. Now, I bring this up because first, hell is a vitally important subject we need to face. Second, because of how we ended our previous lesson. In Matthew 23, verse 33, as Yeshua was condemning some of the Pharisee synagogue leadership, we read, you snakes, you sons of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehenom? It's close to a consensus among Christian scholars, and I share their view, that this statement by Christ was a kind of a, of a rhetorical question that's more a statement. That is, Yeshua is not asking them if there might be a way for them to escape the divine judgment of Gehenom. In English, we usually say Gehenna. Rather, he is saying in a rather mocking way that they have already been judged. Their eternal damnation is certain. They're not redeemable. And while being not redeemable is a, itself just a huge subject with much disagreement and high emotion involved, I don't want to get us bogged down with that today except to say this. I am personally convinced by what the Bible tells us that before we're born, God knows who shall and shall not by our own free will choice accepted redemptive trust in Him. So it's not as though before we're born, God creates some babies to enter into this world that He has willed in advance to have no hope of redemption in their lives. Rather, it is a foreknowledge of whom will accept the grace of salvation, that gift of salvation that's so freely offered, and therefore whom will not. One may ask then, if he has this foreknowledge, why allow those who will destine themselves for hell and eternal damnation to even enter this world in the first place? Wouldn't it be better for that person never to have been born 
never to attain a consciousness of their own existence than to have to suffer eternal punishment? The best answer I can give you is that even the determined and the permanent unrighteous can have a pretty good life on earth. They can have good fortune, perhaps become fabulously wealthy. Enjoy the best material and pleasurable things this world has to offer, and then die relatively peacefully after a full lifespan. We also know from the scriptures that God has always used some of the permanently unrighteous and wicked for his purposes. Sometimes that purpose is to test his chosen. Sometimes it's to punish his chosen with the exiles of Israel. Sometimes it's actually to benefit his chosen in some improbable way. But the truth is that most of the time, from the human and earthly perspective, it is hard to find much rationale behind God allowing the wicked to live, let alone to thrive. And therefore, I lump all these instances together see them as a divine mystery, and I choose not to waste my time ruminating them uh, over it. So it seems that these particular Pharisees, Yeshua was chastising so severely in Matthew 23, are among those determined to never trust in him. Therefore, they have destined themselves for gay Hanom. In other words, while the final judgment is an end times event that will happen at a later time in an entirely different venue with Jesus as the official judge, the verdict that comes later, well, that's already known. Christ's hope for expressing it now is that the listening crowds will be shocked enough to seriously re-examine their own earthly lives their spiritual beliefs, realize their sinful condition, and repent in the name of Yeshua and be saved. So, was Christ actually talking about hell? Or was he merely using the Hebrew word for hell, Gehenom? Or was it only a Jewish expression that was meant to tell someone just how bad they were, as far as this particular person was concerned, but also had no spiritual or eternal overtones built into it. Now, the best way we can examine this is to explore just how this concept of a place of the wicked dead who would suffer began. And although we find such a concept in many ancient cultures, we're only going to deal with it as concerns the Hebrews, the Bible, and Christianity. Okay, so here we go. The Christian concept of hell, as we know it today, developed over many centuries. And it began well after the Bible, Old and New Testaments, were created and closed up. Early in the Old Testament, we read of something called Sheol, which we can best describe as the grave or the place of the dead. It's not a well-fleshed-out concept in the Bible. 
Yet, because we regularly read in the Bible of terms about death, like so-and-so went to be with their fathers, what we're actually reading about is remnants of pagan ancestor worship that remained as part of early Hebrew thoughts about death and afterlife. Thus, among some Hebrews, there was this belief that departed souls took on some kind of a shadowy existence in an afterlife, residing in some kind of underground world of disembodied souls. The Bible's very hazy. It has very little to say about death and afterlife, especially in the Old Testament. But death was terrible. It was feared. And what happens afterward was a total mystery, which is what made it all the more scary. Now, the New Testament offers us more information that actually brings us hope, telling us that at least in this present age, a righteous person has nothing to fear from death. Nothing. A believer that dies goes immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. Now we also learn of a place called Abraham's bosom. Now this was a real place where prior to Yeshua's death and resurrection, the souls of the righteous dead were held captive in a pleasant and safe place. It was essentially a waiting room. So what was the wait about? Well, first, Abraham's bosom is not the equivalent of the Catholic purgatory. Although the Catholic theological conception of purgatory is at least partly based upon Abraham's bosom, the Catholic version is born out of its very name. Purgatory comes from the Latin purage, which means to purge. Thus, the doctrine is that those who die in a state of grace, as determined by the church, go to sort of a middle stopping point and a waiting area called purgatory in order to be purged of their sins so as to be made ready for heaven. The process is of an undetermined length of time. Some may never succeed in being made ready enough for a variety of reasons, sometimes including actions or inactions of living family members. So along with the concept of Abraham's bosom came the opposite, the place of torments. One recalls the story of the rich man and the poor beggar uh, Lazarus. Abraham's bosom contained righteous souls waiting in a pleasant and never needful place for Messiah to come and pay the price for their sins, while the place of torments contained wicked souls in a dry, ever needful place waiting for their final judgment. Centuries later, the idea of what happens to the righteous dead was still mostly unchanged. But a newer term for the condition or the, the destiny of the 
unrighteous dead became Gehinom. Gehinom simply means the valley of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom. It is a long canyon that runs along one edge of the city of Jerusalem, and it's part of it became used as a dump site for the constantly overcrowded Jerusalem and its nearby suburbs. Everything that was waste was thrown there. See, while we tend to think of a garbage dump, more in terms of paper and plastics and cloth and unused food, that's not what it was like in the first century. The waste thrown into Gay Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, came from the hundreds of animals sacrificed daily at the temple, along with the waste parts of animals used for food by the general population. Body parts, human body parts, were known to be disposed there. Amputations, both accidental and on purpose, occurred in Bible times, just as they do now. Debris of wood, item, wood items, filthy rags. They had no toilet paper in those days. Other things more disgusting than I want to talk about were also deposited there. So to deal with this ever-increasing volume of trash, the obvious solution was to burn it. Therefore, fires were kept burning 24-7 to reduce all that garbage to ashes. However, the nauseating odors created were so bad that sulfur was thrown onto the burning garbage as the only known means at that time to mask those otherwise unbearable odors. Thus, the worst thing that can be imagined for a dead person was to have their body thrown into the Jerusalem Municipal Trash Dump and be burned up. Not that this necessarily happened. I've actually not read of any evidence of it happening. It also gained a symbolic meaning of the souls of the wicked dead being punished by being utterly destroyed by fire. Now, I've taught you in the past that in the Bible, fire is used for two things. The first is to purge something in order to bring out its purity. The second is to totally and utterly destroy it. Gehenom was symbolic of the second of these two uses of fire. Now, we really don't find much biblical advancement of, upon the concept of Gehenom as a place of annihilation, as a horrible punishment for the righteous, unrighteous dead. However, emergent Gentile Christianity then took it from there. The first advancement was that of Greek speakers who mixed together the Greek religious concept of Hades with Hebrew Gehenom. Hades had long been part of Greek mythology, but it had played no role in the Hebrew faith. Thus, we find that because of the Greek language that was used to record the Gospels, 
When in Matthew 16, 18, we hear of Jesus saying, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There is absolutely no conceivable way that Yeshua ever would have used the word hell. Or would he ever have said Hades? He only would have had thoughts of Sheol, perhaps of Gehenom. Yet the early Greek Roman Gentile church latched on to this Greek Gentile insertion of the word Hades to depict Christ's words as indicating something that more or less validated the Greek mythology of their underworld of the dead, Hades. By the 5th century, the doctrine of Hades being a place for, the, uh, uh, for wicked souls that suffered in some not very well-defined way had become well-established throughout the church. Medieval concepts of Hades, however, progressed to provide more horrifying details. Pits full of dark flames, terrible cries of anguish, gagging stench, lakes of boiling hot water filled with serpent-like monsters. Eventually, in the 14th century, an Italian poet named Dante wrote the Divine Comedy, and in it, the concept of Hades advanced yet again with the idea that one had various levels of punishment inflicted upon them in proportion to their sins. Therefore, gluttonous people lay in heaps of putrefied garbage. Murderers flailed around and boiling rivers of blood filled with horrifying creatures. See, part of Dante's work included what is known as Dante's Inferno. This is about an imagined journey, journey through hell in order for a soul to be purified sufficiently to finally go to heaven. Now, naturally, Catholic purgatory played a pivotal role in his story. Finally, in the late 15th century, an Italian artist named Botticelli painted what is best known as Dante's Inferno. It was his immensely creative vision of what he thought Dante, the Italian poet, was describing. The painting of fire and tormented souls and multiple levels of punishment and purification through which a soul tried to, to, to move with hell shaped like a funnel has become the foundation for not just Catholicism, but almost all other branches of Christianity. And as the years went on, the thoughts of hell became less complicated and more was stressed fire and the agony of being constantly burned. And these thoughts form most of the Christian doctrines about hell, and generally speaking, it remains so to this day. So we've got to be rather careful when we speak of hell or think of hell, because without doubt, the Bible speaks of a place of torments and a lake of fire and so on. However, the mental picture that we're all most likely to draw is based primarily on a combination of Greek mythology, the works of an Italian poet, 
and a depiction of that work by a later Italian artist. Am I telling you hell doesn't exist? By no means am I telling you that. I'm saying that I have very serious doubts that the model that Dante and Bocicelli concocted was right. What we can know biblically as truth is that after death, the righteous dead go to be with God in heaven. We also know that the wicked dead go somewhere else, and it's very unpleasant to say the least. We know that at a later time, there will be a great judgment in which all who have ever lived, including the righteous and the unrighteous, will stand before Yeshua, will be held accountable for their lives, for our lives. We will be held accountable. We're going to all be judged. One, judgment to everlasting joy. The other, to some kind of terrible torment. There will be no middle ground. There's not going to be a waiting room. There will be fire and destruction involved for the wicked. Now, whether this essentially ends their torments as their souls are finally fully destroyed or they go on existing in some painful state into infinity, it's just not at all clear to me. But I do know that it's something no sane person would want. See, much of God's word, including Christ's statements, lets us know that we definitely do not want to land on the wrong side of judgment. The thing is, you see, there's one and only one way to land on the right side the safe and secure side of a judgment that's not going to be avoided. And that way is to sincerely trust in the God of Israel and His Son, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. This will not be a no-fault verdict rendered by Christ. There will be no nolo contendere accepted. There will be no various levels of punishment with a menu of uh, rather levels of judgment with a menu of subsequent judgments. There will be no journey that once we die, we must take to prove ourselves or to divest ourselves of our unrepented sins so that we eventually have a chance to reach heaven. Our death is the moment our fates are sealed. Our journey is instantaneous. There aren't any do-overs after we die. But knowing that some of you who are listening or watching haven't yet made up your minds about devoting your lives to the Lord Yeshua, I say this to you. You must realize that if you don't choose, God will choose for you. And what I have just described will happen to you. It doesn't have to be that way. 
no matter how bad you've been, no matter what wrong things you may have done in your lives, Jesus died on the cross to save you from that fate if you will simply accept that great gift of freedom. Your sins of the past, of your present, they can be forgiven. Let's move on and read the final section of Matthew chapter 23. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read verses 34 to the end. Matthew chapter 23, uh, 23, starting at verse 34. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away. Oh, I'm sorry. Oop, wrong place. Uh, Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you will kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on stakes as cr- criminals. Some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so on you will fall the guilt for all the innocent blood that's ever been shed on earth from the blood of innocent Havel, that's Abel, to the blood of Zechariah ben Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Yes, I tell you that all this will fall on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, leaving it desolate. For I tell you from now on, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. There is a notable change that begins at verse 34. We begin to enter the realm of prophecy. And this is going to expand as we move on to chapter 24. Yeshua's words will attest to and give some information about the end times. The reality is that the stage of Christ's ministry that was all about teaching and miracle healings. This is nearly closed. So it's his death, resurrection, and the aftermath that is going to dominate what comes next. But not before he explains things about the future that are certain to come. Things that his disciples didn't always understand were actually distant as opposed to imminent. Verse 34 says that Jesus will personally be the one to send prophets, wise men, and scribes from here on. The thought of exactly what they're to do is not completed. Thus, I think it must have been somewhat self-evident. Very likely, this is not meant to speak of three separate and commonly identifiable groups, as much as it is to say that every kind of messenger, especially sent by God, in this case by God's Son, is included even if they might not have any of those specific job titles. They represent what God has always done. 
in the history of Israel. And in the past, all too often, these messengers were met with hostility and even death. Yeshua was saying that history will repeat. Even though the Pharisees just finished claiming in verse 30 that despite their ancestors murdering some of God's prophets, they themselves would never have done so as the religious leadership if they'd been present. Yeshua is rebutting that false statement. Rather, says Christ, these religious leaders are going to do exactly what their fathers did. They're going to kill some who God sends. They're going to flog. They're going to beat up others in their synagogues. Still others are going to just run out of town and then doggedly follow them, trying to ruin their witness wherever they may go. This group of people that Yeshua will send are intended as righteous replacements for the corrupt men that stand before him, men that are leading the Jewish people away from God's truth, from their only means of redemption, and potentially towards eternal separation from him. Now, some commentators focus on the words, your synagogues, as meaning Jewish synagogues versus Gentile churches. Others say your synagogues means the non-believing Jewish synagogues versus the believing ones. I think Jesus is just generalizing. He's not talking in precise particulars. These Pharisees are representative of the leadership of the synagogue system. So in that sense, all synagogues, at least the ones in the Holy Land, maybe just the ones in Judea, are their synagogues. It is a statement making them responsible and accountable for what happens in all synagogues in general. Now, verse 35 is a bit of a challenge. A couple of areas. Yeshua says that these Pharisees are responsible for all the blood shed on earth even that of Abel and of a fellow named Zechariah, son of Bechariah. Now, I think the word earth probably ought to be translated as land. All right, the Hebrew word Eretz means land or it can mean earth. Now, while that word is not used here, because what we're reading in English is an English that was translated from Greek, not from Hebrew. Even so, Yeshua was thinking in Hebrew or Aramaic terms and Jewish thought. He wasn't thinking in Greek. Making the Pharisees responsible for deaths in pagan Gentile nations on the entire planet doesn't fit. <clears throat> Rather, this must be talking about all the unjustifiable deaths in the Holy Land, Eretz Israel. But why are they even responsible for that? Even more, how can the Pharisees be divinely held responsible for anyone's death that took place thousands of years earlier? As with the death of Abel 
at the hand of Adam's son Cain or closer to home? Why were they held responsible for the death of Zechariah, something that took place at the temple? I mean, the first order of business then is to identify this popular, or rather particular, Zechariah. Very probably, whomever it was, was from the distant past in the same way Abel was in the distant past. Second Chronicles chapter 24 speaks about Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, who was killed in the temple area. In times a little closer to Christ's day, Josephus mentions a Zechariah, son of Barach, that was killed in the temple. But there's no record of a Zechariah, son of Berechiah, that has ever been found. I'm not going to speculate. Whoever it was, Jesus knew of, no doubt, so did those that he was speaking to. Another issue is that Jesus was talking to Pharisees. They would have had nothing to do with the temple. Had no authority there at all. See, Pharisees were, compared to the Levite priests, laymen. So what they had to do with a killing near the temple altar is a real head-scratcher. Therefore, Christ likely is talking in some symbolic sense. God holds a person accountable for their own sins, not the sins of others. So I think the answer to this puzzle might be in what Yeshua said just a few verses earlier. I'm going to quote from the NAB, not because the complete Jewish Bible is wrong, but because I think the NAB more clearly says it in a dynamic way that was Christ's intent. It says in verse 32, Now fill up what your ancestors measured out. That's how it literally comes across. Measured out. What your ancestors measured out. What did their ancestors, the ancestors of these religious leaders, what did they measure out? Their wrath. They measured out their wrath upon the innocent. And this group standing before Yeshua is going to fill that cup of wrath of their ancestors to overflowing, as they will in time viciously go after those who follow Jesus as Messiah. I mean, just to, as a note, Paul was a hired hunter for the Jewish religious establishment that about 30 years after Christ was sent to Damascus, among other places, to seek out and arrest all the followers of Yeshua that he could find. The persecution by the Jewish religious establishment was so dangerous that Jesus' brother, our Bibles is called James, who led the believers in Jerusalem, had to hold their meetings in an underground grotto on the hill of Zion. Today, that's in the Greek section of Jerusalem, and that grotto has been found, actually taken some of you there. So here is what I believe to be the answer as to why Yeshua says these Pharisees are going to bear the guilt for deaths that happened long before their time. It has to do with a core principle of the Torah. That is, measure for measure. 
lex talionis, proportional justice with proportional punishments. These Pharisee leaders are shortly going to have their hostility towards Yeshua grow so hot, their hatred going well beyond any doctrinal differences, that they're not only going to help, they're going to insist that the Romans crucify Yeshua. Therefore, the measure of judgment due to these Pharisees puts the murder of Jesus upon their heads. And the murder of Jesus is so atonement can be made even for the countless murderers over the hundreds of years that not only have to do with the Hebrews of the Holy Land, the murder of Zechariah, for example, but it is intended, extended rather to all humans that have ever inhabited this planet anywhere. Abel. Abel was the given example. I can think of no greater measure of God's wrath due to anyone except for that. Therefore, as it stands in the context of the times of Yeshua, it is the religious leaders of the Hebrews throughout the ages that are the catalyst for God to do the things He's going to do with Israel and that He's been doing. And it has little to nothing to do with what pagan Gentiles do. You know, <laughs> pagans behave, behave paganly because they're pagans. But God's people ought to know better. We have the Torah. We have God's Word. Above all, their religious leaders ought to have known better. Thus, they're going to be held the most accountable. In verse 36, Yeshua seems to say that God's wrath will not only fall on these Jewish religious leaders, but also on all the Jews of that generation. So is Yeshua making all Jews responsible? Or is he saying all Jews of Yeshua's own generation, meaning currently living Jews, are going to suffer collateral damage? I think it's the latter. This generation has seen or they've heard of Yeshua's miracles and his wisdom. They have heard John the Baptist make proclamations about who Jesus is and about the Holy Spirit descending upon him. They will soon see mind-boggling things as Yeshua goes to the cross, is resurrected, and then appears alive to many. And yet, a vast majority of Jews of his day will refuse to believe. Thus, they are made accountable because of their complicity and their faithlessness to God. In verse 37, Jesus utters, utters some of the most agonizing and heart-rending words we've, we've yet encountered. He says, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I've wanted to gather your children. Just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. 
Here again, we must understand as much of what he doesn't say as what he does. And please hear this. He does not say, Israel, Israel. Does he? That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is hostile territory for him. Jerusalem is the seat of Jewish religious government and Jewish religious law. Jerusalem is where the most powerful, the elite among Jews live. Jerusalem, when the Holy Land is not being occupied by a foreign power, is the seat of Israel's national government. But Jerusalem is not representative of all the people of Israel. Any more than Washington, D.C. is representative of all the people of the USA. What Jerusalem is representative of is the leadership. So Yeshua is only speaking about Jerusalem, mainly about the leadership, and this is what he holds them accountable for. He says the leadership is responsible for killing the prophets, meaning the Old Testament prophets, and all those that God sent to them with messages of truth and of warning. But what does he mean by how often I wanted to gather your children? He is speaking about all the tribes of Israel especially those that we call the Ten Lost Tribes. Jerusalem, historically and theologically, wasn't only the capital of the Jews. They were and are the capital for all 12 tribes. It is prophesied by Ezekiel and other prophets that in the last days, God will gather His scattered people, Israel, from the four corners of the earth and bring them back to their own land with Jerusalem as their eternal capital. Even though the fulfillment of that event is happening right now, in our day, for all to see, sadly, nothing is more prevalent within the historical church of the past 1800 years than the teaching that God has done with Israel. Folks, Christ was not talking about Gentiles that he wanted to gather like a hen does her chicks. Israel remains at the center of God's will, at the center of redemption history, and all that's going to happen until the end of history. Jerusalem's children is talking about all Israel and God's undying love for his people. Verse 38 seems straightforward enough. Yeshua is speaking about the destruction of the temple. The temple is Jerusalem's house. On the other hand, Ezra and 2nd Baruch regularly make no distinction between the city of Jerusalem and then the temple itself. Once again, we can draw on a readily understandable analogy. Neither most Americans nor the world makes any serious distinction between the city of Washington, D.C. versus 
the White House and the Congress, that are the buildings and the places of government, even though technically we all know the difference. So I suspect that when Yeshua said, your house, he was thinking in the same light as Jerusalem and the temple sort of being conflated as one thing and being very nearly interchangeable terms. Now, since the term house technically is more representative of the temple, something we must always take into account when we're reading the New Testament is that the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat above which God would come down once per year and ho hover over it in order for the, to, to allow the high priest to, to, to atone before him for Israel's sins with, with blood. The ark was never present in the Holy of Holies in the entire Second Temple period. It went missing from the time Babylon conquered Judah and it has never been found to this day. To be clear, at the time of Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant was not there. And by the way, what I just told you, was common knowledge, not some hidden secret of the priests. People knew it wasn't in there. So this means that since Ezra and Nehemiah had rebuilt the temple, called the second temple, the high priest's annual visit into the Holy of Holies was to an empty chamber where he would sprinkle blood onto the floor and not onto the holy ark. So had the temple ceased to be God's house in any meaningful way long before Yeshua's day? Had it already become little more than a ceremonial monument such that Yeshua could now call it your house? Referring to the religious leaders of Jerusalem, my friends, I don't think God lost any sleep worrying about the coming destruction in 70 AD of a temple that had become little more than a den of thieves run by rich, corrupt aristocrats that didn't even belong to the proper God-ordained line of Aaron in order to be qualified as priests. So this 23rd chapter of Matthew concludes with, For I tell you from now on you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. <clears throat> Yeshua's words are mostly a quote from Psalm 118, part of what's called the Hallel. All the more appropriate because he is in Jerusalem for Passover, and the Hallel was chanted during this feast, all the other ones as well. Let's just read a few verses around where this statement of Jesus is constructed. I'll read them for you, starting at Psalm 18, starting at verse 19. Psalm 118, starting at verse 19. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter them and thank Yah, thank God. This is the gate of Adonai. The righteous can enter it. I am thanking you because you answered me. You became my salvation. The very rock that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
this has come from Adonai, and in our eyes, it's amazing. This is the day Adonai has made, a day for us to rejoice and be glad. Please, Adonai, save us. Please, Adonai, rescue us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. We bless you from the house of Adonai. Adonai is God. He gives us light. Join in the pilgrimage festival with branches all the way to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I thank you. You are my God. I exalt you. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good, for his grace continues forever. Amen. Yeshua, you see, is placing himself as the center and the focus of this prophetic psalm, which is about both personal and national salvation. Notice how the psalm itself speaks of the pilgrim festival for which Christ is in Jerusalem. It speaks of palm branches being laid down all the way to the horn of the temple altar. For who? For he who comes in the name of Adonai. This is the Psalm of David, folks. We read, or at least we read in Matthew chapter 21, how Jewish pilgrims for this festival carpeted the road with palm branches for Yeshua and his mount to walk upon in his entry into Jerusalem. But the most important point Christ is making is that he has just laid down the condition for the national salvation of Israel. National Israel must acknowledge him before Israel as a nation and as a people group will be delivered. Still, each individual Israelite can have personal salvation in their Messiah, just as each individual Gentile can. Okay, we'll move on to chapter 24 next time.